Oh, today, that you would hear his voice and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. A reading from Psalm 2. These are God's words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. These are God's words. You can take your seats. This is a pretty familiar psalm for most Christians because it is very prophetically significant, important. And because it is so important, I held back from preaching it in our regular psalm series for some time so that I could give it a full-length sermon at some point. But after non-sermon last week on the post-millennialism of our Christmas carols, I thought we should really start singing Psalm 2, being such a post-millennial psalm. So today, instead of doing a full-length sermon, but this is actually quite a long sermon, I plan to focus mainly on the applications that we can draw from Psalm 2, and specifically its application to us here in Rotorua at Redwood Reformation Church. Right at the beginning, I want to say that this psalm is easier to apply than some of the other psalms that we have done. This is because the basic overarching application can be drawn from the text itself. David gives it to us plainly, but I'm going to hold off pointing out that application until later in the sermon. I just want you to keep that in mind as we work through the text. We are leading up to a big application. Now, I just said that David wrote the psalm, but Davidic authorship is not ascribed to this psalm in the title as it is sometimes in other psalms. The reason we know that David wrote it is because the elders in Acts 4 attribute it to him. And we learn a lot about the psalm from the application of it. They said, The Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? These elders applied David's words to their time, showing that the anointed one, spoken of in verse 2, is in the most ultimate sense, Jesus. So this is a messianic psalm. The kings of the earth mentioned at the beginning of Psalm 2 that set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed are identified as, now quoting from Acts chapter 4 verse 27, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Those who were ruling at the time of Jesus' first coming refused to come under his lordship. And instead they said, in their hearts, verse 3, 
Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, fetters are shackles used to bind prisoners or captives. The fetters that these kings were trying to escape from were the will of both God the Father and God the Son. These kings desired to tear their fetters, plural, the shackles of the Lord and his anointed, away from them. Describing God's will as fetters, these rulers showed that they hated what was good. God's laws are good fetters. But they hated that goodness and righteousness was being imposed on them. Jesus required righteousness, which felt like shackles to them. And remember how Jesus imposed these fetters on them? It was through preaching. He didn't physically bind them to do anything. Jesus preached righteousness, and because of how the truth interacted with their consciences, it felt to them like they were being bound to do what was good. So they tried to tear these fetters apart. And how did they plan to do that? By killing the Son of God. That is what they were willing to resort to. To stop the binding power of the truth, they would murder. They would silence the Son of God through death. Before we move on, we must take note that this is what good preaching does. It forces consciences into good fetters. Jesus taught in such a way that those who were evil felt as though they were being bound to do what is good. His preaching could not be refused. He spoke with authority. After hearing this kind of preaching, some would rather kill the preacher than repent. And this being the case, if some react negatively to a pastor's preaching, it is not necessarily a sign that they are a bad teacher. In fact, if all men do speak well of a preacher, it is a sign, we know from Scripture, it is a sign that they are a bad teacher. If sinful people hated Jesus' teaching, they will hate faithful ministers of God's word that imitate him well. And it is important for preachers to see that in this psalm, that Jesus was putting moral fetters on kings. Even they, holding political office, had a responsibility to obey. And we'll talk about this more later. After David describes how the rebellious kings reacted to the incarnate Son of God, he describes how God the Father reacted to their rebellion. What did he do? He laughed. He mocked them in their futility. From his perspective, sitting in the heavens, they were putting up a pitiful, extremely stupid resistance. They were trying to bring down a brick wall by banging their soft heads against it. It was a pathetic display of wild arrogance, believing that they could remove the fetters of the truth, the immovable, constant persistence of reality, by murdering the Son of God. And David tells us that because of this display of unashamed arrogance, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. The Father found this thing laughable. Something that Non and I have talked about a number of times is the need for Christians to recover a godly laugh reflex. There have always been opinions and behaviors so absurd that they are laughable. But because of a false piety that has crept into the church, many muzzle themselves and stop themselves from doing what feels most natural. A dude in a dress used to be funny in our society. 
especially a dude in a dress that pranced around believing he was truly pretty. Obviously, there is something also very sad about this behaviour. Anyone who would do this is clearly confused and pitiable. He needs liberation from his sins, which would include liberation from his ridiculous bright red lipstick. But because this is sad, it does not mean that there isn't a place to laugh at this kind of high-handed rebellion. And I'm not saying that in every case there is, but there is a place. More than one thing needs to be achieved in our society. We want to see individuals like men in a dress experience the mercy and transforming power of God and his gospel. And we want to see absurdity marked out with laughter. There is a grace in public shame. All onlookers, including our children, will be discipled by what we laugh at and what we don't laugh at. If Christians meet absurdity with a straight-faced respect, they are not only lying, but they get rid of the category of the absurd and replace it with normality. The category of the, the absurd vanishes from the Christian worldview, and Christians end up becoming less than human. Because it is human to laugh at the absurd. You can't avoid it. All humans must label some things out as absurd with a laugh, or they become robotic weirdos. There will always be the laughably absurd. The question is, what will we laugh at? Because we as a society are so twisted, calling what is good evil and what is evil good, we must learn again from God what is in fact laughable. We must recover our godly laugh reflex. Now there is a lot of nuance that I could be giving here, but I don't have time for nuance today. Ask me for some nuance at lunch if you want it. I merely wanted to make a general point here that God in this passage, this is the passage we have today, laughs at the shameless, arrogant, impotent defiance of men. And being made in the image of God, we should look at our Heavenly Father here and desire to imitate this kind of mockery. This being the case, we have to study his word, the psalm being one of them. We need to grow in wisdom with regard to humor. We need to understand the limits of mockery, then go out and make good memes. And don't be deterred by the pietists who would prevent you from laughing like God does. But we see in the psalm that God does not stop with mockery. Let's read what he says next, starting with verse 5. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He, he said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So the father stops laughing and then becomes furious. And his anger leads him to tell everyone that he has set up a king, a king on his holy mountain. This is in accordance with the decree of Yahweh. And this decree was a declaration to his son, that he, this is his son, saying that if he asked of him, he would receive the nations as his inheritance. He then says that the possession of this inheritance would come with the activity of the son, the newly enthroned king. His activity would be a breaking and a shattering 
like the shattering of clay pots with an iron rod. Now, the time of the iron rod rule of Christ is hotly debated amongst those who hold different eschatological positions. But it is very clear from this text, and it is confirmed in the New Testament, that the son's enthronement happened with his resurrection. In Acts 13.33, Paul says, speaking of the fulfillment of the prophets, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the book of Psalm 2, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So he connects the raising of Jesus with the son being begotten. So the son being begotten happened at his resurrection on that day. Today I have begotten you. This timing indicator today is important because after the son was raised, the father said to him, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Now, did the son ever ask the father for the nations? Because if he did, Psalm 2 teaches us that he will possess them. They were promised as his inheritance. We see in Matthew 28 that Jesus asked his disciples for the nations All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. I want them as mine. Make them my disciples. As Greg Bonson famously said, if Jesus asked the disciples for the nations, do you think he would not have asked the Father for them first? Of course he asked the Father for them. The Great Commission is rooted in the fact that he had already been given authority over the nations by his father at his resurrection. The resurrected son was sending out his disciples to claim what was already his. The nations were his inheritance. And it follows from our text that when he ascended, he began ruling those nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 puts all these things together. It is at this point where many interpreters, that's all premillennials, will put a gap. They will agree that the son was given the nations at his resurrection, but they will push the receiving of those nations and the iron rod rule to a future millennial period. The gap is between his ascension and his bodily return when they believe the millennium starts. And this was the view that I was discipled in. Uh, This hermeneutical tool, the prophetic gap, putting it plainly, is a man-made tool. You will not be taught this tool in Scripture. When it is used, it strips the meaning of the time indicators of a prophecy and it leads them to apply, this is the interpreters who use this tool, it will lead them to apply it to an unintended time period. We will address further how this tool is used to avoid the plain meaning of this text in a little bit. But now let's look at the main application that David makes from the resurrection of Jesus, the king set up in Zion. Verse 10 starts with a big, now therefore... Look at that in your text there. So following everything that David had said to this point, here is the big so what. Before we look at David's application, I want us to to just ask ourselves a few questions, get us thinking. How do you think most Christians today would finish this song from this point? What would they follow the therefore with? The Son of God was raised from the dead, and the nations were given to him, therefore what? Ask yourself, would it occur to you and the Christians that you know to finish this psalm the way that David does here? And let's look at how he does it. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show insight. Take warning, 
O judges of the earth, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the main application, at least of this psalm, is to kings, rulers, presidents, all those who have power in the political sphere. There is a new king over the earth. So every other king must be warned. David could have said, Therefore, all men and women must repent and believe in the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world, lest you perish in the way. And that would have been legitimate. That would have been a true application drawn from the reality of the Son's resurrection. David could have made applications to pastors or to fathers or to everyone else holding a position of authority. But David's application is very specific. It is to kings. He says to every future king, post-Jesus' resurrection and enthronement, watch how you rule. The nations are not yours. Jesus is the king of kings. He rules you with a rod of iron. He will smash you into pieces if you do not submit to him. Do not grumble about his fetters as the first century kings did. Love his fetters. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Love him. Love his law. Take care to know it. And serve him faithfully with your God-given office. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Because his wrath is one that is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Be warned, O judges of the earth, either blessing or judgment will be yours depending on how you rule. The specificity, that's a hard word, of David's application is rarely acknowledged or taken seriously by the modern church. And I think this is ultimately because we would love to stay politically neutral. Abandoning political neutrality makes modern pastors very nervous. You mean to say that the actual kings ought to be actually warned, and the warning you want us to give them comes straight from the book that God gave us to preach. They bear the sword. They don't like being told what to do. They don't like righteous fetters. I'm implying that some pastors are fearful of being political, but I don't think that all bad interpretation comes from a fear of government. Like I said earlier, there are man-made exegetical tools and some are convinced they should be using them. They strip this passage of its plain meaning with a culpable hermeneutical ignorance. When it is done, it is usually argued, if Jesus' political rule is future, we have no responsibility in the political realm now. But that cannot be established from this text, with, even with a gap inserted. It makes no sense of David's application. Why wouldn't it also apply now? Why require the obedience of kings in the millennium only? And will the standard Christ holds the future kings to be different than now? Is the law of God arbitrary or is it a reflection of his will, a transcendent and unchangeable reality? Can justice be shifted? It does not make sense. And a gap of political neutrality, a church period or parentheses, does not follow from what David has established. There is no logic to it. One other way that interpreters escape the plain meaning of the text is to interpret the word kings broadly. 
i.e., as something other than king, so that the application is not actually being made to all future rulers. Instead, the application is to all individuals who hold authority. And kings is like a symbolic representation of all authority. This argument is similar to the one being used by egalitarians who try to, make, who, who try to avoid male headship and submission by emphasizing the need for all to submit to one another. They functionally remove the specific by emphasizing the general. But this is two kingdom silliness. And the fear of God should lead those interpreters to repent of their twisting of scripture and take the details seriously. The kings at the beginning of the psalm that are revealed to us explicitly in Acts, they were people holding political power. They used that power to put Jesus to death. This psalm clearly addresses how kings should rule and not whether they should go to church on Sunday and receive forgiveness of sins. Of course, they should do that, but this is talking about how the kings are to serve the king of kings with their office. But acknowledging that the true application is to kings specifically and kings now, what does this mean for us here at Redwood? We are not kings. We do not hold political power. Would it be right for us to make application to ourselves? Well, I believe if we do this carefully, there are plenty of applications that we can make. With our current political system, we are all holding some political authority. We all vote. We all have the ability to participate in many ways and to various degrees in the democratic process. Our kings, our prime ministers and mayors and different things, are supposed to represent the will of the people. So as Christians, we should ask, what is the will of God for the political realm? How can we represent his will in the political office, political sphere? The psalm teaches us that we should want our representatives to be serving the Lord with gladness. We want to be under righteous rule because this pleases our king, the king of kings. If we are going to seek righteous representation, we first need to understand what righteousness is. So our highest priority here at Redwood with regard to politics is to teach what the scripture says about the civil sphere. What is God's will for those wielding political power? We can all see the rise of totalitarianism and socialism in our day. Many apolitical Christians, like people who try to live apolitically, they can see this too, and even they are happy to point out the problems at times. But you can't beat something with nothing, as Gary North said. If we are going to critique cultural Marxism in all of its forms, we need to be able to offer the Christian alternative. And what is that alternative? That is what we at Redwood here need to establish. We need to be trained in the word of God in a Christian, specifically Christian, political philosophy. If we do not go to God's word, how else will we know his will for the civil sphere? Before we move on to our next application, I just want to say that training this church in a Christian political philosophy sits further down our list of priorities than many other things. For the most part, in our everyday lives, we are called to minister in the spheres of the family and the church, So we mainly need equipping in these areas, and that will be our emphasis. Nevertheless, 
teaching a Christian view of politics must make up a small part of our discipleship. We would be neglecting a very important area. One reason that this has become more important or more necessary in our day is that government has become one of our biggest idols in modern society. Pastors ought to be like men of Issachar that understood their times. And as far as men, non, uh, non and I have assessed this, assessed our times, today, Christians and non-Christians alike have a messianic view of the state. Since the civil authorities wield so much power, people believe that it can fix all problems. But this is a modern idol, and it must be devoted to destruction. It should be hated by Christians, because it strips the resurrected Christ of his authority to rule. God gives some political solutions to societal problems, one example being the punishment of murder. But most problems cannot be solved by the government. The government is a servant of God, a deacon, with a specific job to do, and that is to be a minister of justice. And since it is a specific role, one big thing that must be taught to the nations is what the government should not be doing. Non-post-millennialists often claim that we believe in salvation through politics. That couldn't be further from the truth. We want the government to shrink to a tiny little fraction of what it is today. We want the government to be out of our lives. We don't want it to wield one bit of authority that was not given to it first by God. We want all politics to be bound by the fetters of God's law, not adding to it or taking away. And just as it was in Jesus' day, this will draw the hatred of those who do not want to be bound by God. Nevertheless, we must learn and teach the purposes and limitations of government. And this leads to the second and final application I'm going to make today. There's much more that we could have drawn from this text, but this large application is a big one that will be good for us as we go out into this new year. We should take courage from this psalm that Jesus is ruling right now with a rod of iron, that the fate of the heathen nations is sealed. Like I pointed out earlier, we have very little political power. We are at the mercy of big government. But this psalm teaches us that our circumstances have come about by the will of our God, who is enthroned right now, our sovereign Lord. His rule has led to the current state of things. So we can trust that we are called to this particular time as a church and that he will equip us with what we need to fulfill our purpose in this time. Along with this, we must remember that it is the will of God to bring nations into obedience with a rod of iron through smashing. God raises up big bloated governments and arrogant kings only to smash them. History is full of failed nations that vindicated his wisdom uh, for the political sphere. They did not kiss the sun, so they perished. Right now, we live in a nation that is primed for perishing. We do not know exactly what the future holds, but we know for certain that God will not tolerate the current state of things. This nation, which was predominantly Christian, is his inheritance. But the modern secularists have robbed his inheritance from him. 
The one who holds the rod of iron will not take this kindly. If he was indifferent to this robbery, he would be a wicked son, despising his inheritance. This must provoke him to anger, because he is a righteous son. And remember, this passage says that the son's anger is quickly kindled with high-handed rebellion. And we're getting further and further into high-handed rebellion. Living in New Zealand, this is both a terrifying thing and a comforting thing for Christians. This means that there will be pain in the future for this nation. There will be pain. But it also means all government oppression will one day cease from this land. As we seek to understand and apply God's will for the political realm, we can know that the church, that we, the church, will be on the winning side of the coming political strife. We are contributing to a victory. So take courage that Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron. The rebellion of our current president and her party is a futile attempt at throwing off the fetters of Christ. She doesn't acknowledge these fetters, but they are nonetheless true. Her rule will be considered, at the end of history, a laughable bump in the road. Having this perspective will allow us to maintain our joy in every politically sourced trial. And more than this, we will be able to fight what seems like a losing battle with a confident countenance. Paul spoke about the importance of this display of a lack of fear in his letter to the Philippians. He said, And be not frightened by your opponents. This, not being frightened, confident countenance, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. A lack of fear signals something in a fight. It signals something to the world. That our salvation is coming just as surely as their destruction is coming. Knowing the future that Psalm 2 promises and living in light of it will be a tangible witness to those engaging in the culture wars. This is one way that the world will be warned about the rule and reign of Christ. We are not frightened by our opponents. All the resistance to the king is ultimately futile, and we, the people of God, are safe as we take refuge in him. That's the last part of the psalm. He is the good and righteous resurrected king, and he is our Lord, so we can take comfort in that. All right, we're going to sing Psalm 2 now. This is... Why do the heathen nations